Father, I pray that you would um, now especially work through your word. God, help us to sense the living and active nature of your word because of how uh, powerfully you minister to us through it now. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, wonderful things about you and your son and what he's done, and wonderful things about the life, the blessed life that you've called us to live as the witnesses of your son and in obedience to your law that's for our good always. God, thank you for this word. It is a good word. I pray that you would help uh, by the power of your spirit, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to be pleasing to you as a, a pleasing aroma of worship to you. We offer this time to you and in the name of Jesus we do. Amen. Uh, please open your Bibles to Acts 23. Acts 23. And in the beginning of today's passage of Scripture, we find the Apostle Paul in what must have been one of the lowest moments of his Christian life. And we recognize this when in verse 11 of Acts 23, the resurrected Lord Jesus appears to Paul and says to him, Take courage. Or as the King James has it, be of good cheer. The same command is translated in other verses as take heart. You see, Paul was especially disheartened at this time. He needed the Lord to spur him to courage and cheer because he lacked it. And the Lord met Paul's need. He gave Paul words that would revive him and restore his determination to be faithful through difficulty. And some of you need the Lord to do that for you today. So listen to the words God has given us. Look down at verse 11 in your Bibles. It's the first main point of the passage, a call for courage and faith. A call for courage and faith. Verse 11 says, The following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now we know that the Lord gave Paul this message, especially in light of the discouraging events that just happened, because the beginning of the verse pointed out that the Lord said these things to Paul the following night. This was the night that followed the events that put Paul in such need of fresh courage. So what had happened? Remember, Paul was at this moment in prison. He's in the Roman military barracks in Jerusalem. And in the 36 hours that preceded this, he had almost been killed three times. When he arrived in Jerusalem a few days before, he found out that not only the unbelievers were opposing him, but also even the believers in town uh, were not too keen on his ministry and might not welcome him because of rumors they believed about what he was doing among the Gentiles. And, and so the leaders of the church came up with this plan for Paul to participate in some of the Jewish ceremonies in the Jewish temple so Paul could show, see, look, I'm not against the law God gave to Israel. And this plan seemed to be a spectacular failure because while he was in the temple doing that, some Jews recognized him, seized him, dragged him out of the temple, and called for the whole city to come and help them to do what? Well, they tried to beat him to death. 
literally, right there on the spot. And so the Roman military commander in Jerusalem, the, the, the tribune, caught wind of what was going on, and he sent soldiers to hurry and arrest the man who was at the center of this uproar. That's Paul. And then while he was being led away to the Roman barracks, you remember this, the soldiers had to carry him because the crowd was, was still trying to lay violent hands on him. And then amazingly, he asked for the opportunity to speak to this large crowd that was following him, screaming for his death. And so the soldiers set him down, and he turns and he faces the crowd, and he witnesses to them all. He shared his testimony. He proclaimed Christ from victory to victory. Not really. That also seemed to be like a big failure. Uh, his witness to the crowd just stirred them up all the more. They intensified their calls for his death. And so the Roman tribune took him to the barracks and tied him up to flog him, discourage him. This was a brutal method of torture used by the Romans for interrogation. And it did very often kill the person who would be subjected to it. Paul said he's a Roman citizen just in time to escape this fate. And then the next day, then, the tribune brought Paul to the high council of the Jews where they would bring charges against him. And look at verse 10 of chapter 23. You can see how that ended. When the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And that night, after that 36-hour whirlwind of near-death experience and rejection of his witness and false accusations, the Lord made himself known to Paul and said, Take heart. He desperately needed this encouragement from God. Now remember, the Spirit had warned him on the way to Jerusalem. You're going to face hardships in Jerusalem. So he had some opportunity to prepare himself to experience this. But it doesn't matter how much you see hardship coming. When it comes, it's still hard. And you need God to minister to your heart then, in the middle of it. You can't just stockpile sufficient spiritual help from God ahead of time to make it through without receiving more in the thick of it, in the midst of your hardships. Now, Paul was beat up physically, and he was full of all kinds of disappointments and uncertainties. I say that because on the way to Jerusalem, remember, that's when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, and he said to the Romans, this is what I hope to do in Jerusalem. Pray for these things. He said, pray that the financial support I'm bringing to the poor Christians in Jerusalem would be acceptable to them. Did the Christians in Jerusalem ever welcome him? He asked the church in Rome to pray that he would be delivered from unbelievers in town. Was he delivered? He's in prison, almost died three times, and he's still in the midst of these people who are scheming how to kill him. He told the church in Rome that his prayer and desire was that he would see his Jewish brothers saved by faith in Christ, Romans 10, 1 and 2. He said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart over the Jews' rejection of Christ. That's Romans 9. Well, they just had rejected his witness 
hard. Paul asked the church in Rome that he would be able to visit them next to build them up in the faith and to be sent along by them to, to preach the gospel in even further lands. Well, again, this good gospel ambition seemed to be majorly in doubt at this point. So, so all of this disappointment, uncertainty, uh, d- deferred hopes, if you will. Hopes deferred makes the heart sick. On top of all the bodily pain and injury he was still feeling, oh, this left Paul pretty low. So where do you go when you have such pains, the pains of disappointment, physical suffering, the pains of hopes deferred? The Lord drew near to Paul and gave him words. Take heart, be of good cheer, take courage. So so before we, we go any further, just let this scene of Scripture teach you this truth about our Lord. He cares about His people. He cares about the welfare of His people. Psalm 37 says He delights in the welfare of His people. It matters to the Lord when His witnesses are discouraged and downcast and afraid. So see see the heart of Christ to draw near to Paul this night. I bet some of you could share testimonies in which you would say some of the most powerful times of communion I've ever had with the Lord have been during my lowest moments of life. It's because the Lord is a good shepherd who meets us often powerfully when we need him most over his word. Now, verse 11 actually said, that night the Lord stood by Paul. It's a vivid picture. Christ appeared to Paul. Uh, in a a vision that he could see one standing by him. The idea, not just in his company, but in his defense. And I don't think Paul ever forgot this experience. And near the end of his life, he wrote 2 Timothy, the passage Calvin read. And, And there he spoke about the Lord's presence and strengthening help with him. In these same terms, the Lord stood by me. Remember 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 18. Paul said, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever. Jesus reminded Paul in a powerful way the truth of Psalm 121.5, that the Lord is your shade on your right hand. The truth of Psalm 16, I have set the Lord ever before me. He is at my right hand. The Lord Jesus stands by His people. He stands by His sheep. He stands by His witnesses. So call this to mind, Christian, in your lowest moments, in your times of deepest disappointment. There's there's no reality that should bring to the heart of a Christian courage and cheer and encouragement and strength of heart quite like this, that the Lord is near. The Lord stands by Our greatest hope and joy is that Scripture says Jesus stands by as our advocate before the Father, always presenting to the Father the perfect case for our defense, that He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. Now consider also the Lord stood by Paul and spoke. The, The Lord is not just with us as a silent God. He is a God who speaks 
And to us, he speaks through what he has spoken, through his living and active written word. God works through his word. And so Jesus doesn't just appear to Paul. He appeared and said something to Paul. He said, take courage. And then Jesus said why Paul should do that. Now, friends, anytime you see commands like this in Scripture, commands that, that you know, have to do in some ways with your affections, your attitudes that you can't just change like flipping on a light switch, rejoice. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Anytime you see commands like these, look nearby for reasons why you should have the joy or courage or peace that God is commanding. God gives them. The Lord is a good shepherd. He doesn't leave his commands unsupported in his word. If I tell my kids to rejoice and I don't say anything else, how much can I really expect them to start rejoicing? What if I give them a reason? If I say rejoice, we're going to eat ice cream after church. Right? Joy unspeakable and full of glory in the front row here. God gives us reasons to have courage and cheer. Look for them. Uh, for example, other places in Scripture where Jesus gave the same command, the same Greek word, take heart. Matthew 9, 2, he said, take heart, reason. Your sins are forgiven. John 16, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Well, we're going to need a reason for that one. I have overcome the world. See, so Jesus didn't just appear before Paul and say, have courage, and, and then nothing. Just leaving Paul to throw up his hands and say, courage? You see what just happened to me? Now, immediately after he calls him to courage, he gave him a good reason for it. He said, for, because, second half of verse 11, just as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul, regain your courage because I have a promise for you. You will witness in Rome. You must, verse 11 said, testify also in Rome. We could translate this phrase, it is necessary that you also witness in Rome. All that God promises is necessary. It necessarily will come to pass. And that's why the one who trusts in God, Scripture says, will never be put to shame. You're put to shame when you, when you put all your eggs in a basket and it doesn't come through for you. Well, trusting God's promises is not like that. You, you'll never be found having wasted your life waiting for something that won't necessarily happen when you trust in the promises of God. And, and really, uh, Christians even, can, we can make a mess of our faith by trusting in things that might not happen. And trust in what God has clearly said will happen, necessarily. There's a lot of material to work with. There's a lot of promises to trust. What more can he say than to you he has said? This is a firm foundation for us because what God has said is necessary. It will come to pass. Now, if you say that you're trusting God for this and that, but you can't point to a chapter and verse where God clearly promises you this or that, is it really God that you're trusting? 
Trust in God's clear promises. God gave Paul a clear promise as a resting place for Paul's faith. Paul would, he must, end up witnessing in Rome. And and listen carefully to this. It was as Paul trusted in this good promise of God that courage and cheer would come. That's why I labeled this main point a call for courage and faith. When the Lord saw him in need of comfort and courage, he gave him a promise to trust. So what should you run after when you lack holy resolve and and heart? You're disheartened. Go get promises to trust from God. Go, Go find in Scripture something certain to cling to. And let God meet your needs and revive you as you believe it. Now consider again the nature of this promise the Lord gave Paul. It was supposed to reignite and sustain his courage. It wasn't a promise Paul would avoid future pain and disappointment. It was a promise that Paul would still get to serve the Lord. A promise Paul would still have more opportunities to witness about Christ. Now, it wasn't even a promise that his witness in Rome would be all that effective. He said, just as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so also you must in Rome. If Paul's witness in Rome is going to go like his witness in Jerusalem, how's that going to go? Is that a very encouraging promise? Would that lift your spirits out of the dumps? It lifts a born-again heart whose loves are rightly ordered and maintained that way. If, if, what you wanted most for Christi- if, if what you wanted most was just to be faithful to whatever the Lord Jesus might have for you, that's an encouraging promise. When Jesus told Paul, you have testified to the facts about me in Rome, I was encouraging from this angle, too. He was saying, in effect, you fulfilled your duty here. You've accomplished my purpose. You succeeded here. Never mind how they rejected your witness. As for you, you have testified to the facts. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's that's the the force of, of that phrase. And then Jesus said, I have another opportunity for you to testify about me. You'll accomplish my purpose there too, as you have in Jerusalem. Okay, see again, Jesus is is not just trying to rescue Paul from unpleasant emotions. He's preparing Paul for future faithful service. That's the point of the promise ultimately and the point of the courage he's calling Paul to to prepare him for future faithful service. That's not because Jesus needs Paul's service. It's because he knows that's actually what's best for Paul. Further faithful service to his good master. That's eventually what we need to fix our eyes on. Eventually, in our most disheartened and fearful moments. And again, this reminds of, of 2 Timothy 4. What did Paul say was the reason the Lord stood by him when no one else did? It said, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So we should go to God's promises to be strengthened, not merely to find medicine for a better mood, 
but to find the courage and encouragement and hope we need for ongoing, active, faithful service to our Lord. Because when we're walking, abiding in Him, bearing fruit for Him, He says, then my joy will be in you. Your joy will be complete. As Paul walked in faith to this promise, that faith would fuel the courage he needed to do that. It was a courage that had been beaten out of him by the difficulties he had just experienced. And it's a, it's a courage that would be threatened by the difficulties he was about to experience. So it wasn't just in light of the hard things that had happened before this night that Jesus gave this promise to Paul. The Lord gave this promise knowing Paul would need it in, in light of what was about to happen to him. The need for this call to courage and faith, it becomes more apparent when we see what comes next. What, it, it will seem to threaten the promise that Christ gave to Paul and also threaten the courage the Lord called him to have. So the next main point of our passage is threats to courage and faith. Threats to courage and faith. And it began the morning after, right away, Paul had this vision of the Lord standing by him. Look at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Now, more literally, the idea in verse 12, the, the verbiage, is that they placed themselves under a curse. A, the, a form of the Greek word anathema is used here, which you may have heard. It's a form of that word used in Galatians 1 when Paul says, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. Or at the end of 1 Corinthians, if anyone has no love for our Lord, let him be accursed. One commentator suggested that, that if they used curse oath language like we find in the Old Testament, then this pact could have sounded something like, may God do so to me and more also, if Paul is not dead soon. Those are pretty high stakes. Now, you're probably thinking these men were, were pretty foolish to put themselves under this curse, under an anathema before God. You'd be right. But let me remind you that the Bible says that if you're not a Christian then you are putting yourself under a curse of God, a far greater consequence than this. Because if you're not in Christ, then you necessarily are relying on your own record of keeping His law to be right before Him. And the Bible says all who rely on their works of the law are under a curse, anathema. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So if you've broken God's law, you have, and you're not in Christ, then you're under this curse. And its end is death, an eternal death. But God has given a clear promise for us to trust so we would be of good cheer. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus took our curse before God when he died on the cross for our sins. 
So if you put your faith in that good news, clear promise from God, it will give you the most important kind of courage that you can have. Courage for the day of judgment. Courage to stand before God for eternity and know that He counts you righteous and doesn't count any sin against you. How? By not relying on your works, but relying instead on what the Word of God says the Son of God did and what God promises to give those freely who rely on these promises. Forgiveness, eternal life. Now, think back to Acts 23 now. Uh, Clearly, these 40-plus Jews intended to kill Paul in short order. They weren't going to make it long without food and drink. So they acted quickly. Look at verse 14. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath, put ourselves under a curse, to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, verse 15 gives us the details of this assassination plan. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So ask, ask the tribune to, to bring Paul another time, and we'll set up an ambush. And practically speaking, this was not a bad plan. You remember the tribune? He was really eager to find out, hey, what, what exactly has Paul done? Why is everyone so mad at him? Okay, let's harness that curiosity, tell the tribune, we're, we're going to examine him again, just better this time, so, so bring him near. The Lord, though, had a promise to keep, and so, incredibly, Paul ended up hearing about this plot before the tribune ever did. Look at verse 16. The son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Who? I didn't know Paul had a sister. This this is so random. The son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, what are the chances of this? Where'd this guy come from? Then he would be in a position to hear this ambush plan? This, this is impossible, right? Except for the Lord. And so picture this, what happened the morning after the Lord appeared to Paul, just a few hours later, he receives this news from his nephew. There's this assassination plot out against you. Now imagine how that news must, uh, could have struck Paul if the Lord had not, just hours before, strengthened Paul's heart with his promise. Over 70 Jewish zealots had sworn to kill Paul right there in Jerusalem. But God had sworn that Paul would testify in Rome. Paul believed the Lord's promise. And so he did not shrink back in face of this danger. Uh, The faith in the promise gave Paul courage to take action. In verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. That did take a certain courage. Paul's giving orders to the centurion, as if he had any rank there in the Roman barracks. But God was in it, and so the centurion submitted to the prisoner. And he brings the young man to the tribune. And then God opens the heart of the tribune to pay attention to what is said by the little boy. 
see that starting in verse 18. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one you have informed me of these things. It's not a guarantee what the tribune does with this information. What does he do? He immediately sets in motion a plan to save Paul. And in a way, that is above and beyond anything that Paul could have thought to ask God to do. The tribune mobilizes nearly half of the Roman cohort stationed in Jerusalem to rescue Paul from this conspiracy. Look at verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Get about 500 military men ready. Light and heavy infantry, cavalry, prepare them to set out for Caesarea tonight. You'll leave three hours after sunset. Bring Paul safely to the governor of Judea and, and prepare pack animals for Paul to, to ride in in the midst of this military march. That's verse 24. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Now, he wasn't even going to be prodded. Uh, along in change in the front by, by the spear. It's amazing. This, the might of the Roman military brought into the service of the spread of the gospel. The might of the Roman military brought into service of God keeping His promise. As Calvin led us, hoping in this truth, all things work together. To this end for our good, for God's fulfillment of his promises to us. The tribune didn't care about the gospel. It, almost certainly he was just trying to, you know, save himself, not letting a Roman citizen die under his watch. And, and probably I think he was, he saw this as a, a good way, a good excuse to get rid of the difficult case of Paul and let him be someone else's problem. Bump him up the ladder, you know, go get the manager. But the Lord had different ideas. And the Lord used the tribune, contrary to his intentions, to preserve his witness and to keep his promise. It's wonderful. What does it teach us? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. The soldiers of the Roman military served his will, though they did not intend. This is why we can live in courageous faithfulness. Trusting God's promises because God's sovereignty has no limits. God could have ordered the whole Roman army to escort Paul to Caesarea. And he would have if that's what would have been necessary to keep his promise, which he always does. 
faith in God's promises. See, it, it's never a, a wish dream because God is sovereign and faithful. And the next few verses then tell us how the plan developed. It tells us about the letter the tribune sent to the governor. Look at verse 25. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, that's the name of the tribune in Jerusalem, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man, Paul, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them and with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Uh, that's kind of a self-serving spin on what actually happened. Anyway, verse 28 continues the letter. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. End of letter. That's it. And so in verse 31, the military takes that letter, and they take this prisoner, and verse 31 says, the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Now that was about halfway to Caesarea, 35 miles away from Jerusalem. And certainly that was far enough to put Paul safely out of the reach of these assassins. I mean, what a night this must have been for the Apostle Paul. Just 24 hours after Jesus stood by him and said, take courage. There he was in the dark, surrounded by a small army of Roman military men, soldiers and spearmen and cavalry. He's receiving a maximum security escort out of Jerusalem. I mean, do you see that in your mind? I hope that you do, and I hope this picture of this secret nighttime military march out of Jerusalem is something that convinces you more deeply of how worthy God is of your trust, how worthy God's promises are of your trust, even in your days of most intense trouble and danger and deferred hopes. See how Paul's faith in the Lord's promise was justified. More than 40 Jewish assassins plot against him, and so Jesus raises up a militia of more than 400 trained and armed Romans. Now, I'm sure that as Paul was riding on the back of a donkey or riding on the back of a horse, he's thinking, wow, this is better than I traveled in any of my missionary journeys. And he's surrounded by this truly unnecessarily large uh, Roman military unit. I mean, he had to be full of praise and wonder. At, at how strong and kind the Lord Jesus was to orchestrate all of this that was happening. To see the men marching, the spears in the hands, you know, before him and behind him and on either side of him. And to see the, the cavalry riding, sword at the ready, before him, behind him, on either side of him. And all of this around him would remind him that, that what truly gave him courage, what all of this represented was that the Lord himself was standing by him as his defense, his true help. And he is your true help and defense as well. 
Now the next day, the danger was largely gone, and so the infantry returned to Jerusalem that morning. It's, I mean, they didn't need that many in the first place, but, but now they uh, peel away some, some of the escort. Only the cavalry finishes taking Paul to Caesarea. See that in verse 32. On the next day, they returned to the barracks, soldiers, letting the horsemen go on with him. 33. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. Yeah, that was to make sure that Paul was in his jurisdiction. He could take the case. And when he learned that Paul was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And that was the governor's own residential palace. Uh, Felix was the name of this governor who ruled over Judea and Cilicia at this time. And he said, put him in the palace. Now, Paul was safely out of Jerusalem, but, but he was going to still need to draw strength, courage, from the promise the Lord gave him two nights ago. And in some ways, he's going to need it now in Caesarea more than he did in Jerusalem. I say that because Paul's progress in ministry is going to bog down big time in Caesarea. Verse 1 of chapter 24 tells us that five days after Paul arrived, the high priest and other Jewish leaders showed up in Jerusalem to bring accusations against him. So already things are moving a little more slowly than they did in Jerusalem. But then how did that trial come to an end? Felix just put Paul back in confinement. That's chapter 24, verse 23. He gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody. And how long was he just kept there? Look down at the last verse of chapter 24, verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison still. Over two years, Paul is just stuck there. Doing what? Well, verse 26 says Felix would call for him, the governor, often and have conversation with him. But the verse also said Felix was doing that to just try and weasel some money out of him. So his opponents didn't succeed in killing him, but they did, it seemed, succeed in, in caging his witness Verse 27, again, it said, Felix left Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews. Now, don't you think this two-year period was a great threat to the courage and faith that Christ called Paul to have? I think it was. Two years of no progress, no movement towards Rome, no signs of anything different happening, really of anything encouraging or particularly discouraging happening. No direction just stuck. I mean, how many times was Paul tempted to feel incredibly disheartened through this? I think, and I think you think this also, that sometimes it can be easier to trust God's promises through days of intense danger or trial than it can be through long periods of waiting when life feels 
stagnant. There's no major movement, no clear progress, nothing exciting, and no clear way out. During these very dull years, how often did Paul need to remember the words of Jesus and, and draw strength from believing them? Take heart. Take heart. I'm here again today. Take heart. Be of good cheer. Don't give up hoping. God's promise will come to pass. You will witness in Rome. You must. God has said it. It is necessary. See, it's not just when something really bad is happening. It's also when it seems like nothing is happening. That you need to fight the fight of faith and trust that all that God has promised you will happen. And if you do that, then even in these long doldrums of life, then the Spirit will work through the, way, the Word as you believe it to help you take heart so that you can continue to be faithful and active in serving the Lord as much as you have opportunity. Now, this had to be a hard season for Paul. It seems so fruitless and, and pointless at times. So he needed courage. He needed to be encouraged so he could be as faithful as possible through it. So instead of being discouraged and, and lethargic spiritually, he would be stirred up. And then he would resolve, okay. Okay, this next conversation with Felix, I'm going to give it my all again. I'm going to be engaged. I'm going to try and be scriptural. I'm going to try and be prayerful. I'm going to try and be shrewd again. And then with my extra time here under arrest, I'm going to pray earnestly and, and longer. Through years of, of no progress, you need this encouragement and zeal that can only be sustained through faith in God's words. So what you need to, to keep lively and hopeful in serving God by ministering to others, even if you feel like your wings are, are clipped somehow in, by your circumstances and how much you can do that. Now, could the Lord who rescued Paul from the murderous plot not rescue Paul from this calm prison in the governor's palace? And the Lord had stood by Paul in the night of great danger... Was he still standing with Paul through these stagnant years? Of course he was. But, but I'm sure Paul had to very regularly draw encouragement, fresh encouragement, from fresh remembrances of God's promises and putting his faith in them anew to fuel fresh courage, fresh cheer. And you need to do the same, not just through those big bursts of big trials, but through long periods of time when life feels stale and stuck. The Lord had not forgotten the promise he made to Paul. And in the end, faith in the promise, drawing courage from it, proved to be completely justified, vindicated because Christ fulfilled his promise. So very, very briefly, I'll point this out to you in the scripture as a third and final main point. After a call for courage and faith and threats to courage and faith, we'll now see the vindication of courage and faith. So during these stalled out years under Felix, the Lord gave Paul plenty of time to ponder what to do, to pray for wisdom, what to do, what he might be able to do to get to Rome. And after Felix left and a new governor replaces him, which we read about already, Festus, 
Paul drew courage from the Lord's promise, and, and he took his chance. Look at verse 9 of chapter 25. 25, 9. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor again, said to Paul, Do you wish to grow up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? They had set up an ambush to kill him again. Verse 10, But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. 11, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. You know what that means? Where was Caesar? The governor just said, in effect, Okay then, to Rome you go. I don't think it's too much conjecture to suppose that, that Paul let a little smile slip when he heard those words. It's finally going to happen. Jesus said, you must testify in Rome, and now Paul hears the fulfillment of that promise set in motion. To Caesar you shall go. And then in the final chapter of Acts, you, you read these details and they're kind of blasé details unless you've agonized with Paul in his sufferings and, and in the uncertainty if he would make it there. In chapter 28, verse 14, it says, And so we came to Rome. 28.15 says, The brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. God, thank you for the promise that you're faithful to your promises. Thank you, Jesus, for your promise that you stand by us, that you'll never leave or forsake us. God, I pray that you would teach us as your people how to walk by faith to walk by faith in your clear promises so we could be filled by the power of the Spirit with a kind of holy courage and, and hopefulness to be able to serve you faithfully and vigorously. God, be pleased in us by accomplishing these things in us. Thank you for this word you've given us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.